Captain, we have them. We've established Transporter Lock, the Star Trek Discovery podcast. Join Ken and Sabriel each week as they explore strange new episodes, seek out new plots and new characters, and boldly go where no podcast has gone before. Hello and welcome to Transporter Lock, episode number 93 for Friday, February 26th, 2022. I'm your co-host, Chief Engineer Ken Gagney, and guess who's joining me? I am Captain Sabriel Mastin, and Ken, I am feeling cautiously optimistic-ish. <laughs> Is that the best we can do? Well, I guess I'll have to take it. <laughs> I'll do my best not to kill us all. <laughs> Much appreciated, as always. Thank you, Sabriel. As much as I joke about how weird it must be. To record all those lines when no one else is around, they are pretty funny. I love it when Stamets talks like that. <laughs> and he said that line in this week's episode of Discovery, which was season four, episode 10, The Galactic Barrier, which is such a descriptive name. I feel like we've come a long way from when Discovery was calling itself an obel for Sharon or Saints of Imperfection mm-hmm. or The Sounds of Thunder. Now we just have what the show was actually about and where it's at. <laughs> what this episode, what happens in this episode. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if there was a change in the creative team or they just reconsidered what they were doing. Like when I launched my first movie blog back in December, 2006, I always tried to write funny, quippy headlines and they rarely had anything to actually do with the blog posts. It made it hard for people to find those posts going back because I was just being a little too clever. And now that I'm aware of the concept of SEO, I realize what a bad idea that was. So maybe they also had a, uh, like a, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, we still had anomaly, very vague, uh, <laughs> all is possible, stormy weather, but to connect, which it was like half of a sentence that we didn't get to see. Um, I think it just worked out. We get to see well, something I- that's been, uh, a very, uh, we get to an episode title that describes something that's been a barrier for a number of series in Star Trek. Well, with the other episodes this season, like Choose to Live, All is Possible, The Examples, those words were actually in the episode. And so when somebody says them, I have a pretty good recollection of what they were about. But when we talk about contexts for kings, pfft, lost on me. <laughs> But yeah, the Galactic Barrier, this is like the complete opposite of Star Trek V, where they went to the center of the galaxy. Now they're actually going outside the galaxy. Yeah, that which was is, the Great Barrier, wasn't it? There was some sort of a barrier, yeah. And this is the first time we've seen Starfleet intentionally, of their own volition, <laughs> go outside the galaxy. Is that right? <laughs> uh, something like that. Calvin's tried to force the Enterprise to do it. Uh, or Enterprise... TOS Enterprise, you know, the original scientists, um, uh, or those old scientists, was it? Uh, And then then, uh, someone else did it in TOS uh, when he saw one of the Medusans um, in Next Gen. Uh, The Traveler sent Enterprise beyond the Galactic Barrier, but the Galactic Barrier really wasn't brought up. It was just brought to, yeah. So, yeah, this is the first time I think that we've intentionally gone here and through it. And one thing I did not look up prior to this podcast, and which I wish I had, was, is the galactic barrier a real thing? Like, yes, we do live in separate galaxies. That is astronomically true. But is there an actual 
impermeable barrier that blocks one from the other. It's funny when you try to search for it. Star it Trek. Appear, it fills in. It's all Star Trek. Star Trek. Star Trek. Yeah, um, I just did a Wikipedia search for galactic barrier. And it says <laughs> list of Star Trek regions of space. I don't know and if it's real or not. It's pretty far away for us to even know. I'm guessing. Yeah, maybe we should have like a cosmologist on the show for a future episode guest. I mean, I can find someone who knows a bunch about makeup, but I don't know if they're going to know anything. Yeah, that's going to be a cosmetologist. (laughs) I once met an MIT student who was majoring in cosmology, and I said, oh, so you want to be a beautician? And everybody around him (laughs) laughed except for him because he said, you know, when my girlfriend introduced me to her parents, that's what they thought. (laughs) Speaking of jokes that don't fly. Uh, yeah, this episode. Was not funny. <laughs> in this episode, <laughs> the linguist oh. Dr. Hirai uh, and Kovic making a little joke about linguistics and culture. <laughs> and they're sitting here around the table laughing while the rest of the crew is just like, what? <laughs> yeah, I wasn't like, I thought it was funny, but I wasn't sure where Star Trek was going because usually when you're laughing at Star Trek, it's not always intentional. Not always. So sometimes, like with data or with uh, Vic Fontaine, but in Discovery, there aren't a lot of uh, intentional humor that I can think of off the top of my and head. People will make references or quippy little comments or things that will be funny to outside observer, but someone's sitting here cracking a joke. Uh, that's not all, all that common. Yeah, and especially Kovic, also in that scene, made a Gilligan's Island reference. <laughs> oh, I loved it. I loved it. Like when I, I picked up on it and I thought I would be the only one, but then Saru picked up on it and Kovic had to explain himself. I'm like, okay, first of all, that's weird. And second of all, that's weird because I feel like I'm watching the Orville. The Orville is a great show, but it operates with the assumption that there was no pop culture that existed between early 21st century earth and when the Orville takes place. Like every single reference they make is one that the audience, the viewers are supposed to get. And I, I was just a little surprised that a show from like the 1960s would have survived into the pop culture of the 31st century. Oh, it makes perfect sense. I don't know. Maybe. (laughs) Bob Denver is really popular. <laughs> oh, those poor people. <laughs> I mean, mean Voyager was like a, just a roving Gilligan's Island. Each week we got a new guest appearing on the show. That's true. <laughs> true. I hadn't thought of it that way. Wow. They I didn't either until this moment. <laughs> you could build anything out of coconuts, but they couldn't repair their ship to get it back to the Alpha Quadrant. Uh, they broke it because they built the glue. And it turned out the glue wasn't going to cut it. And when they attached the glue to the ship, the ship just blew apart even more. And so they spent seven years looking for things to make them go. Yes. Awesome. So all more, than, more than a three-hour tour. <laughs> yeah. So we are already talking about this show in a roundabout way. Uh, I Speaking of those opening moments, I really liked the moment where President Rillick said she was going on the away mission or on the diplomatic mission and the admiral stopped and turned to her and called her by her first name, Lyra. And I was like, oh, these are not just dignitaries. These are not just figureheads. These are people who have a working relationship. Like they might not be friends in the sense that you go out for drinks together, 
but there's somebody who they have worked together long enough that they have what can count for a friendship in the office. And I was really touched to see the concern one has for the other. No, I, I agree. Um, this was them kind of like, okay, you're going. This is serious. You might not come home. We can, what, what's the proper terminology here? I, I mean, uh, we'll let her hair down a bit. It's not quite right, but you get the idea. Um, let down her guard. Yeah. And yeah. we're people here too, even behind the ranks and everything. Yeah, I think the evolution of the characters of the Admiral and of the President are some of my favorite things about the last two seasons of Star Trek because it's been subtle but important. People who we didn't know we could trust proved to be people we could trust. And you and I have talked about how unlinear, nonlinear some of the character development can be in Star Trek, how we learn things about people just in time for it to be important. I feel like the Admiral and the President are two examples of them pacing themselves well. And I really like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I wonder if season three of us would have thought the same way about uh, Vance, because for the longest time we weren't sure if we could trust the Federation. And, turned, and then he turned into, as I discovered, people call him the Dadmiral. <laughs> uh, I love that. Yeah, uh, but he seems like a really awesome guy. I love Admiral Vance. Yeah, like uh, toward the end of last season, we found out he has a family. Toward the end of this season, we find out that President Relic has a partner. You know, these are not things that are coming up too late. These are things that you don't share with your coworkers. Mm-hmm. Like my coworkers don't know if or whom I'm dating, and even a lot of details about my immediate family because it's just not relevant. Uh, well, so that can I can bring that around to this episode is about connecting. Uh, we see it with Vance and the president. We see it with Michael and the president. We see. It with Taru and Tarina, we see it with Book and Tarka, and Tarka and Oros. Um, it's all around. Are there any one of those connections you'd like to talk about now? Uh, I always want to talk about that just kind of concept first. Um, all this episode, or and even the season, has been about, hey, we need to talk about, get through things, so we can work on this together. And- which is exactly what Star Trek has always been great at, which is talking things through. Yeah. Uh, and let's start at the beginning. We kind okay. of just kind of jumped in, but um, a whole thing is setting up this episode. And we have uh, a few, uh, oh, let's see, uh, President Tarina of Navarre. Uh, I'm forgetting the president of Earth at the moment, uh, at least to the representative, the military leader there. Okande? Mm-hmm. Is that right? I don't know. Um, I, 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 I mistake. I just, I haven't seen the character enough to get her name into my head. And then we get um, uh, Kovic, the president, Michael, and Vance. And we're sitting on the table talking about first contact. And we also get, I think, a little neat. We get a little, oh, and the, the linguistics, Dr. Hirai, which I made sure mm-hmm. to write down his name because we're going to talk about that in a minute. Um they have all these commun- uh, communicators and devices from all periods of Trek that we know. Mm-hmm. Did you catch those? I did. Uh, we got like a TNG communicator. We've got uh, Enterprise TOS equipment. I thought it was just a neat little thing. And that was when the joke happened. Um, when Kovic mentioned 
that he's got something else big going on. Yeah, we could not imagine anything more urgent. And he says, and I want to keep it that way. <laughs> uh, this kind of lends to the hypothesis from season three that he's with something to do with section 31. Doesn't mean he is, but there's something more going on with this guy. And I wonder if that will come up this season or if it's total, just a little one-off that we're supposed to ignore or if uh, it'll be future shows material. I suspect that we're just supposed to ignore it. It's supposed to, I mean, he has always been a mysterious character. And I think the goal of that line isn't to set up a, a, a separate future plot. It's just to make him even more mysterious. It totally would fit that character and that actor. Um, it does set up something else, though. Which is? Uh, Bryce, our communications officer, he mentioned to Saru that he's going to work with Dr. Kovich. That's right. We are losing a lot of people on this show. Uh, Tilly and Nan and now Bryce. Yeah, and I found out this morning that possibly why is because the actor, Ronnie Rowe Jr., who plays Bryce, is now on a CBC show called The Porter. So him, the character leaving, might be because the actor went to go and work on another show. It might not be, but that is happening outside of Star Trek. Wow. Wow. So, I mean, we also lost, of course, Tilly and Adira and Tal, and Adira came back, which we can talk about more. But I I got the sense watching this episode that it was more like DS9. What I, One of the things I loved about DS9 was a practically rotating cast of characters. It had all these people who you didn't expect would be important become so, like General Martok. And you had people leave, like Jadzia Dax. And I actually liked that. But now that I'm seeing it on Discovery, I kind of want a little bit more consistency. I mean, Tilly, Adira, Tall, Bryce, Nan, that's five people who were, were named characters. And Jet. You know, yeah, I mean, supposedly Jet is still there. At one point, I think last week. They mentioned her name, yeah. Yeah, Burnham said to Stamets, have Jet work on it. I need you doing something else. And I mean, Jet was never really a major character, but I still thought she would show up this season more than she has. Yeah. Oh, and I don't know if I should bother mentioning Arium because we learned <laughs> about her before she died and the actor is still on the show. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so... Be interesting where you just, or it'll be interesting to see where that goes. And Mary Wiseman said Tilly's not gone uh, on the radio room weeks ago. Uh, so I wonder where she comes back into all this. But it's not here. Yeah, there's no way that any of these characters like Nan can just show up on the other side of the galactic barrier. Like, oh, you know who'd be really helpful right now? Tilly. Can we get her on board? <laughs> because our shields are down to 3%. Uh, speaking of the galactic barrier... Looks like a bunch of um, a lava lamp with black globules. <laughs> that is an excellent analogy. I hadn't thought of that. What I had been thinking about was the old movie Inner Space. Mm, uh-huh. Dennis Quaid. Because it kind of seemed like they were going from blood cell to blood cell. It totally did. Uh, this is not the first time we've seen the Galactic Barrier. In the past, it's been portrayed as a pink ribbon in space. But it's not the Nexus. And here it's now globules, but it's always been dangerous. Mm-hmm. Uh, varying degrees of how heavy the episode needs to go into it, but the original series went through it a couple times, the Enterprise. 
Uh, and the Kelvins, their ship was destroyed. That's why they needed the Enterprise to go back through it. Oh. Uh, and so it's not the first time we've seen it be a massive danger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was more than they even had bargained for. Even with the programmable antimatter shields, they still got by with only like six seconds mm-hmm. to spare. It did not occur to me until this episode that pro- programmable... If there is programmable matter, that programmable antimatter could exist. And I'm guessing they didn't think about that until they're like, hmm, we need a MacGuffin. <laughs> yep. You need something very convenient that has no real meaning, but which can apparently interact with regular matter without harmful side effects. Let me guess the programmable part. <laughs> Program it not to kill everything. Mm-hmm. Great. That's easy. <laughs> Yeah, so they, they they did get by. I liked the visual effect where all the they turned down the saturation. Yeah. I well, let me be clear. I didn't like the effect. I liked their explanation for the effect. That your eyes was it something like your eyes will lose some ability to see color for a bit or something like that. Yeah, and technically they didn't even explain why that happens, but the lack of saturation is a common dramatic effect. You can see it in the Man of Steel movie, and I hated that oh, God, because it was, it was terrible there. Yes, the movie itself was terrible, but also the saturation was terrible. And I've seen there's a YouTube trailer that I'll put in the show notes for this episode where somebody took that movie and turned the saturation oh, back up. Yes. I think the title of the video is "What If Man of Steel Was in Color?" Yeah, didn't they do like just the trailer and then they colored it the normal yeah. colors? <laughs> Yeah, it's such a more vibrant film. Yeah. So I don't necessarily need to see that in Star Trek, but the fact that we weren't the only one seeing it, I thought was neat. Yeah, and the, the heck, the graphics for the Galactic Barrier was just gorgeous. It mm. reminded me a lot of what when like Antman goes to the suborbital or sub subatomic, excuse me, the inside of something. It looked beautiful. It was amazing. Oh, and also, it was quite visible to me while they were navigating the galactic barrier that Discovery does have detached nacelles. I I know we saw that last season, Mm -hmm. and I thought at some point we either saw or hypothesized that they would be reattached for the fourth season. Uh, But now we can confirm that they're not. There was some talk about that somewhere I saw. People were talking about it might have been a mistake here, because in the past it showed that they had to connect them to go to warp. Mm. Uh, But I don't care. Uh, we're already past the point of where, like, okay, sure, they float, and apparently it's not a problem. So whatever. If they're at warp, I don't care. If they're not at warp, I don't care. <laughs> you're yeah, absolutely not- right. But no, you're, you're totally right. Like, what is is there consistency here? Is there actually a quote unquote a need or whatever? And I think, yeah, I think we've seen it before where they're connected. And here, it's like, well, them being detached is how we know we're in the future, <laughs> right? <laughs> It's like uh, how you know you're in the Kelvin universe is uh, when everything has lens flare. flare. That's true. That's right. <laughs> Although I've also heard people call it the handsome universe because everybody is handsome. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, speak- I'm going to put it out here. And I'll- I hope this will finally get the nerds to be quiet about it. Uh, in the final shot, Discovery is at warp through the galactic barrier and the shuttle bay is closed. Oh, I did not notice that. Uh, yep. Because uh, <laughs> every week I just see something on a comment. Close the doors! Close the doors! <laughs> I'm like, clearly it's not a problem. <laughs> right. I mean, they that's what they have shields for. If it weren't, f- I mean, 
are shields up by default? I mean, I guess they're not because otherwise the captain would never have to say shields up. Uh, if you want to get into the nerd-tacularness, like, uh, excuse me, okay, we're going into the technical science corner here, and they have navigational deflectors that helps def- reflect, deflect space debris. Got it. And you don't need either of those for structural integrity. Like warp <laughs> itself would not tear apart the ship if they had no shields. Right. Uh, you get the most. The only time you really see this matter in Star Trek is Voyager's Year of Hell, mm. when space debris starts hitting Voyager, damaging it more when it's gotten snot kicked out of it. Oof. Yeah, that was a rough couple of episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Galactic Barrier, neat, cool graphics, little drama. Did it press things there? Uh, they made it through. We were knew they were going to do it, but uh, the drama happening during it of do we tell uh, the crew about what the DMA has done while we left, after we left. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, DMA, DMA moved. Yeah, but it moved into a place that is going to threaten whole planets again, seemingly for the first time since Quajon. And those planets are known to us, the viewers, and to the crew of the Discovery. Yeah, uh, I love here, like, the crew is in danger. All of a sudden, everyone's talking about what they're going to do on Earth. Huh. <laughs> Isn't that the same thing that Tilly and team did when they were on that space station? Uh, they, they did talk about what they want to do and where they want to go. Yeah, so it's not the first time even this season. But I got a kick out of it that this time uh, we see it on the bridge. Not the first time they were in danger, but here it's the first time. Oh, yeah, I'm going to go hiking. I'm going to go to Hawaii. I'm going to go, you know, like have my ties or whatever. Uh, I'm going to go work through my backlog of video games. <laughs> Said nobody ever, apparently. Um, but yeah, that Let's, was, that was, did it really, mm, it helped set up the president and Michael saying like, showing him Michael saying like, the crew needs to know their president is in control. I guess we'll see if it really pays off. Well, not only that, but what I think Michael didn't say is that the crew already knows that they can trust Michael. They don't know that about the president. Yeah. And so the president needed more of a popularity boost than Burnham did. That's true. That's true. Oh, I forgot a whole little thing with Vance, which is related, kind of. Let's hear it. When Discovery warped or poofed away from uh, Federation headquarters, we had a little long shot of Vance staring at the ship, knowing like this might be the last time he sees it jump. And that was a really neat, soft scene that was quiet and somber. It occurred to me that we rarely, if ever, see Discovery jump from somebody else's point of view. Yeah, you're right. Like, usually we're just the omniscient viewer. Like, last week, when they were jumping around inside the DMA, fighting off book ship, there was no third ship from whom we were seeing that shot. Like, there wasn't, like, a camera on somebody else's ship. Right. But here... It was like, we're looking right over Vance's shoulder. This is almost exactly what Vance, somebody else in the Star Trek universe, is seeing. And that did, I forgot to put it in my notes, but I did notice that that was a a nice shot and not one we often see. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Um, Mm -hmm. And then we get that message from Vance saying, hey, Earth and Navarre are now in danger. Uh, Here's your... Wait, actually, you know what? I'm sorry. I I did put it in my notes. I... (laughs) I guess I didn't. I write better than I read. One of my line items was Admiral watches Discovery mushroom away. 
because I couldn't think of the word spore drive warp or whatever. Well, good thing you brought up the Mushroom Network, because apparently uh, we kind of got some reference that maybe the Mycelia Network is only within the galaxy and not out of it. It was a lot that, clearer. Yeah, that's what they're telling us. Uh, and again, it's one of those things that we don't have an explanation for. We're just supposed to accept it as fact. And I'm like, okay, I'm fine with that. Also, apparently there are fewer stars outside our galaxy. That makes sense. Does it? Scientifically, yeah, because you don't have much to grab onto out there. Or they got left behind by some galaxy going through. That makes more sense to me. Well, actually, this brings up a question. And maybe they answered this in the show and I overlooked it. Did they go from one galaxy to another? Or did they go from one galaxy to in-between galaxies? Uh, No, they're just on the outside edge of the Milky Way. Okay, so in that case, yes. If they are actually like in between galaxies, which you would expect there would be such a thing, then yes, fewer stars does make sense. Yeah, uh, imagine the bubble, and now Discovery is riding on top of the bubble. Yep, no, I get it. Oh, we're just gonna go with that. But but mycelial network, my mycelial network, <laughs> is apparently very strong within the galaxy, and it connect can connect you to other universes within the universe, right, or the galaxy. But they didn't say it's not connected to others. They just said it's very stringy, loose, weak. Well, there have been been times when Stamets tried to use the mushroom drive in a place that he shouldn't, like in a subspace rift or in another universe, and bad things happen. So I would not be surprised if we see him try to use it outside the Milky Way. I don't know if it'll work or not, but... I can totally imagine Discovery getting itself into a spot where Burnham's like, Stamets, we need to get out of here. Yeah. I had I had hypothesized that maybe future Star Trek is extragalactic. And mm. this kind of narrows that back down. Because if there are fewer stars, then where would they go? Oh, or I meant, okay, they just my hypothesis says other galaxies through the mycelial network. But if that is, if they're oh, going to explain see. that as weaker connection, maybe that's not possible. I don't know. I don't know. Also, as Prodigy has recently shown us, there are still a lot of alien races we haven't encountered. So it's not like they're running out of plot ideas within our galaxy. Space is really, really big. Like, you might think it's a long way to the chemist. But that's like, oh, what's the, what's the word? That's uh, from Hitchhiker's Guide. Oh, I'm sorry. That's, I, I uh, that's like poppycock to space or something like that. I don't remember. <laughs> I'm not going to Google it. We're just going to go with that. So going a little out of order of the episode, but since we're talking about Discovery breaching the barrier, they said that they were going to go survey a planet that was not too far from the hyperfield. Do you think that's going to prove important next week? I mean, for all I know, that might be the entirety of next week's episode. Yeah. Uh, I mean, hmm. they really gave us nothing to go on. except we're going to go look at it. And so I guess we're probably going to see something to it, whether it's going to be a whole episode or not. Maybe someone's there. Maybe it turns out someone is living there in a habitable or in like a little bubble, a tent, space tent. Hmm. Um, I'm curious. I can't wait to find out because, man, after after Tarka's backstory, I'm wondering if we got some hints. It may not be related at all, but I wonder if Oros has something to do with everything that's going on with Tensi. Oh, gosh. Do you think those are somehow connected? Think? No. Hypothesizing and throwing what sticks out? Maybe. A clarification you've made before. Okay. Valid. <laughs> uh, yeah. Unless there's anything more you want to touch on with this planet. Should we go back to Book Tarka and Oros? Well, one thing about the planet is 
I'm thinking back to last season when it took Discovery like four episodes at least to get to Federation headquarters because first Burnham arrived in the future, then Discovery arrived in the future, then they went to Earth, then they went to Trill, then they went to Federation <laughs> headquarters. So I could totally see that. Okay, yes, time is of the essence. The DMA is near Alpha Quadrant habited planets. On the other hand, they want to go into this prepared. And if they find something on that planet, they're not going to just say, we'll look at it on the way back. We're in a rush. They're going to stop and take their time so that they can go to the hyperfield as well prepared as possible. So I would not be surprised if that planet makes up a chunk of next week's episode. That makes sense. That makes sense. Or it, they might just find that, well, this is a just actually. I wouldn't be surprised if it is the ancestral home of the people in the hyperfield and it's been abandoned and they might get some clues as to why they moved into a hyperfield. Oh, maybe. Or planet is where they store the unobtainium. Mm, mm-hmm. It's the home planet of the Borg. I don't know. Gosh, I hope not. <laughs> There's right, some hypotheses so- there too. Oh, people are talking about the Borg in relation to this episode of, or this season of Discovery? Uh-huh. Dare I ask? Oh, gosh. Okay. We're going to go all over. Uh, yes, I'll bring it up. Uh, last <laughs> week, we loosely touched on it. The device looked vaguely like uh, the thing, how Bora, Boromir, the Boromite, uh, to house um, yep. the, the Omega Particle. Yep. Oh, yep. Uh, I didn't catch any references, but apparently people have made a number of references to 10 particles or particle 10 or something like that. The board called it particle 010. Hmm. Um, and so people are wondering, Borg something? I don't know if it has any ho- merit. I would say low probability, but not hmm. out of, not impossible. Okay. At the moment of what we've been given. But yeah, with the whole Boromite and power source thing there. Well, I remember on Voyager, it was at the very end of one episode where I think they found a Borg skull or something. And that was the first appearance of the Borg in the Delta Quadrant on Voyager. So that was them saying, oh, we know that they have been to this part of space before and we're likely to see them. That was some very heavy handed foreshadowing. I feel like not all foreshadowing needs to be that heavy handed, but at the same time, we would have seen a little something more than what we have if the Borg were going to suddenly show up at the end of season four. Yeah, it depends if they're going with the season three mythology, because we had no hint that it was going to be a a, a kid from Saru's people. Uh, but, but I think you're right. that I think they would have teased it a little more obviously if it was the Borg. And also, like, mining planets and destroying their populations prior to assimilation does not seem like something the Borg would do. Yeah. At least the Borg as we know them. Right. It doesn't feel like it, but I can't count it out. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. I don't think so, but eh, guess we'll see in the next few episodes. Um, yeah. So let's talk about Tarka. Yeah. So Tarka or book is ready to ship Tarka off on an closest habitable planet and say, good luck. See you later. <laughs> Start. <laughs> He should have done it. He even packed his bags for him. <laughs> well, he should have done it. Oh, I... Hmm, should he have? Huh? I don't know. Maybe. Probably. 
he d- keeps allowing himself to be manipulated mm-hmm. by Tarka. And it's like, like I've been there where I go to the casino and I lose, say, $100 on the roulette wheel. And I figure to myself, if I bet another $100 and I win, then I break even. Exactly. And then I stop. If you could just double, you could double your paycheck in one bet, Ken. Or not <laughs> Not just double my paycheck, but recoup my losses. Like my original goal was to double my paycheck. And when I went in the opposite direction, went in, in, in the black, not sorry, in the red, then I'm like, okay, now I just need to get back to where I was and then I'll stop because I realized this is a bad idea. And that is where Book is. Like he trusted Tarka. It blew up in his face. And Tarka says, oh, but if you trust me again, then I'll get you what you're looking <laughs> Book keeps falling for it. Uh, I wonder if something tells me Tarka is done with the the double-crossing, backstabbing, stabbiness until, you know, maybe the last moment, but for a while. Something tells me he's like, dang, my whole plan of being a little jerky, jerk, jerk, uh, didn't pay off any after all. Um... Maybe I'm going to try this be a nice thing I've seen some people do. And then I'll use it at the last minute to be a jerk again. But think about at the beginning of this episode, he was saying, look, I proved to you that the power source exists outside the DMA. That's something you didn't know before. Ha ha, I helped you. Uh-huh. Like he is refusing to admit his own failure. Even though he said, I developed a working model of the DMA without having ever seen it. I'm like, no, you didn't because then you would have known where the power source was. <laughs> Like you can't separate he he's making this structural error of implying that the DMA and the power source are two different things. And that's like saying, Oh, I built a car, it just doesn't have any gasoline. I'm like, then what no, you didn't build a car, you built a very heavy paperweight. <laughs> uh, uh you know, you're not wrong. But I came away watching this episode liking Tarka even more, the character. I liked the Tarka we saw in the flashbacks. Mm-hmm. I don't like today's Tarka <laughs> anymore than I did last week. Oh, man. I ship Tarka and Oros. <laughs> yeah, I, I can see that. But at the same time, Tarka's been going on and on all season. I'm exaggerating a little bit about you don't know the depth of my loss. And I'm like, you lost a friend. <laughs> People have been there. People have done that. You're not unique. I agree. 100%. You're not unique in this, Tarka. Uh, but whatever he has convinced himself that he is. Uh, a lot of people say, say things like that, too. Um, but no, I agree. Like, ever people have lost. Others have lost people, too. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I don't know why he is thinks that makes him special. Just because he's very smart doesn't mean he's very wise. An important distinction, and one that I should know from having rolled up D&D characters. (laughs) So Book and Tarka go to a planet. It looks like a planet that Discovery goes to, uh, the show goes to a lot. Uh, (laughs) Not not, uh, to film things. Yes. It's like the same. uh, And they also, that planet also had a lack of saturation. Yep. Uh, That's how you know it's um, a different planet from Earth or something like that. I don't know. uh, Book is like had enough of this, and he's like, because he sees an emerald chain base, and he's like, "Come on, Tarka, WTF?" And Tarka's like, "All right, finally, I will give you my backstory." <laughs> and uh, we get it all in one info dump. We do. Um, um, I like this. Tarka was originally supposed to, um, 
snitch on this scientist who's making uh, working on warp drive stuff. Yep. And um, but he ends up getting close to Oros, which um, wow, I I like that little relationship they built up. Tarka quickly, or you know, he seemed to understand that. Like, dang, I can't betray this person. They're too sweet. Um, mm-hmm. um, this is the first time Tarka admitted someone else was smarter than him. That was Oros. Um, Oros reminded me a lot of uh, the people from Voyager called the Voth, the people who evolved from dinosaurs. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't know. They never mentioned that. I don't know if it's supposed to be, but he reminded me of it, hmm. uh, which would be a neat little thing. The uh, Helping Oros get through the alarm uh, that was going on because Oros is having uh, PTSD from when his previous partner died. Our lab partner died. That was really mm-hmm. sweet. Um, the cuddling while calculating in the air was cute. Mm-hmm. Um, then the uh, Emerald Chain coming in there and uh, Tarka is all like... Because uh, the guy, of course, revealed everything about the betrayal. Mm-hmm. And Oros, I forgive you. Uh, Tarka's like, I don't deserve that. I was like, you're damn right you don't. <laughs> and but it was still wow and Oros still forgave him and mm-hmm. Oros is still clearly looking for him too or at least so he thinks well I don't think Tarka would have done anything differently if he wasn't planted as a snitch you know, I think that his behavior for the last two years was relatively authentic I do too however <laughs> that's always a however with me so his friend Oros he th- Tarka thinks Aros escaped to this other universe. They were originally going to power this transporter using both a warp core and the geothermal energy of a planet. And Tarka has spent the last 10 years unable to replicate that level of energy to the point where he thinks he needs whatever is powering the DMA, which spans multiple light years. There's inconsistency here because we've seen interdimensional transporters even in DS9 with the mirror universe. And well, I, I will give Tarka credit for an important distinction, which is the mirror universe is pretty well known to us. And maybe this, do- maybe this doesn't make sense now that I'm thinking about it, but Tarka said, he didn't say that it would be the energy to beam to a different universe was s- substantial. He said the power necessary to target a specific universe yeah. within the universe. Yeah. Now, granted, that's what the mirror universe transporters do too, but maybe because there was already an established link between the two. I don't know. Maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe kind of like galactic barriers, galaxies can be closer and farther apart from each other. And maybe some universes are just one string vibration away from us. And the mirror universe is very close to us, which makes it a short trip. But other universes in the multiverse are farther away and thus required more energy to get to just like going from one quadrant to the other is going to take more uh dilithium than going from earth to navarre yeah i don't know uh my favorite D setting eberron has that too like different planes of existence at various times are closer to the material plane the prime universe oh. at various times they have manifest zones where they connect and uh use Perfect. it a lot and so yeah uh plausible and that's different from Planescape? I don't know. On their plane. 
Okay. But that is another D&D setting, isn't it? Um, that is something to do with RPGs. <laughs> <laughs> I don't uh, have an answer for you. Here it is. Planescape, originally published in 1994, is a campaign setting for Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, it, it encompasses the entire cosmology called the Great Wheel, oh. including and it includes many other D&D worlds, linking them via interdimensional oh. magical portals. Okay, see, I just know a Spelljammer. Uh- <laughs> or Spelljammer, too. That's spacefaring. Yeah. Uh, Planescape is different from that. Uh, yeah, so there is some... I'm just going to go with it, with the technology thing, or the energy thing. Like, okay, sure. Because uh, I... It's a little weird. Feels inconsistent. Maybe I'm missing something. But mm. I don't know if it matters in the grand scheme of things it might not it might i don't there might be distinctions i don't understand but um why i brought up tensi and oros is because tarka thinks oros is still around right because he left that little uh symbol i'm drawing a blank on on the wall yep and after the escape and so that means to me oros is somewhere and there's like well, my brain went to either he made it there and he's waiting for, and he was trying to tell Tarki he made it or is about to make it or he thinks he's about to, or um, maybe on his way there, Tensi captured him, forcing him to work with them. I don't know. I don't have nothing to stand on. I'm just like, I don't think we've seen the last of Oros is where I'm getting at. And I wonder if that means something to do with Tensi for better or for worse. It would kind of remind me of the movie Sneakers, where the person from your past suddenly shows up at the end, and they are the villain. (laughs) I wouldn't be surprised if something like that happened here. Now, that's not to say I'm expecting it, just that I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, or else doesn't seem like the type of person who was intentionally like target Earth and Navarre. But it feels like Ten C clearly seemed to target that for a reason. Yeah, and also, if they had a more powerful DMA at their disposal, why didn't they just deploy that in the first place? Uh, yeah, it might, maybe it's their emergency backup. Like, oh, crap. The people here, they're a little stronger than we thought. We need to go into plan R. Use the good one. Use the good mining equipment instead of the decent mining equipment. <laughs> maybe it takes more energy. The fact that they deployed a stronger one and in the Alpha Quadrant implies that they do have some potentially hostile intent, especially now. Hostile intent or, mm, you shouldn't have done the thing you did. This is your little, you know, like, bap on the nose. You're just going to destroy your home planet. That sounds pretty hostile to me. I, just like I said earlier in the season. Uh, the ants to them? Uh, yeah, ants to them. It's like, oh, maybe not openly hostile, but it's a threat. Which mm. I think there's a dis- tiny distinction there. Kind of like the difference between asking a question and questioning. Uh, sure. <laughs> like, like it is threatening to the people who are living there, but I feel like it's more of a. Hmm. Um, nice. Which you know, it's a thin line. Hmm. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about book because mm-hmm. last week he agreed to Burnham's terms which were that he and Tarka would wait to deploy the isolated weapon until after they had attempted their diplomatic solution. That ended up not being the order of operations. The isolated weapon was deployed. And so I feel like Book got his shot. He did what he wanted to do. And he's not letting Michael do what she said she was going to do. Now, not only does 
book not have a plan for how to stop the DMA once he crosses the galactic barrier. But also, I feel like he's going back on his word. Like, he was going to do nothing and let Burnham do a diplomatic approach. And now he's not doing nothing. And that frustrates me because it's two-faced and it's not going to be effective. I guess I don't know. I don't know. If it's too, I don't know. Two-faced feels strong. But maybe you're right. I feel strongly. Strong. I feel mm-hmm. like Book is crossing the Rubicon and getting to a point where he cannot go back and redeem himself because he is doing, he has done so many wrong things. He has made so many mistakes and he keeps compounding them with more mistakes. He didn't just make one mistake and say, Oh, guess I shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry, Michael. Let's try things your way. He's like, Oh, my last mistake didn't work. Let's try another one. I can see where you're coming from. feels like to me that here the terms changed. Uh, like, well, guess he blew that up. All right, good luck. I'm off to do my thing again. Um, he never said he was going to back down for good. And so I'm guessing he probably, for for correct or not, it's like, well, that's not a thing I agreed to. Or the thing I agreed to doesn't exist anymore. So I guess I can go back to the original plan. Yeah. Like, what's he going to do? Go back to the Federation and just sit there? <laughs> They're not going to let him do anything. I think he should go hide in a cave and wait to see what Burnham does. <laughs> Which is roughly what he said he was going to do. Oh, well. I don't. Did he say that, though? He just said he's going to wait a week. Yeah, he said, we will back down for, we will stand down for a week while you pursue a diplomatic solution. And uh-huh. he, and that is not what he's doing now. Well, things changed. I mean, yes, but the whole point of giving somebody your word or making a promise is sticking to it. And if you're like, oh, that was the me of yesterday. The me of today doesn't want to honor that agreement. Uh, I see here. I was like, mm, well, we've said we're not going to blow it up. Guess we accidentally blew it up. So uh, I guess uh, that deal's null and void, huh? All right. See you later. <laughs> okay. okay. That argument I can see. So that's, he said, that's where I'm going. He said that he was going to stand down and he broke that promise, not intentionally, as soon as Tarka launched the weapon. So I guess you could say he's already broken the promise. What's a little bit more promise breaking? But still, that is similar to what I was saying about compounding your mistakes. Yeah. He is compounding things, I guess, to some degree. Uh, I just don't know if it's the whole, I don't know if it's a, a double cross. And... Yeah. I think we're on a similar path, but not the same way to get there. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, regardless, I hope, well, are you disappointed in book or is that just me? Let me ask you that. Oh, uh, he's past that. I was, and now I'm like, okay, whatever. I don't know idea how. There, I don't know how in the world you're going to redeem yourself now, if that's even uh, possible anymore. Because I don't see it. So I guess being disappointed requires somebody not living up to your expectations, and when you don't have any expectations anymore, mm-hmm. you're not going to be disappointed. Uh, there we go. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> so like, Star Trek is all about redeeming and communicating, especially this season, and so I'm interested. I am interested in the path they're going to take to redeem him if they do it all. Uh, mm-hmm. I would like to see them make a chance, take a chance and not redeem him quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we shall see. Uh, speaking uh, of taking chances. Yes. Do you think they're going to try to... I don't think they are, but what do you think? Uh, they're going to destroy Vulcan again or Navarre? Oh, no, no. 
I don't think they are. I don't. I think what we have lost this season is Quajon, and we don't need to compound that. I don't think this is going to be a Pyrrhic victory. I don't think so either. Uh, I guess we'll see if they subvert our expectations. Nah. I mean, nothing is more satisfying than a last-minute win. And so, like, if the DMA is approaching Earth and they, you know, to think about the end of Season 1 of Picard. Like, that interdimensional robot race was ready to enter our sphere of existence. And at the last minute, that robot gal had a change of heart and she shut it down. You know, it's going to be the same thing here where at the last minute we plead with the DMA creators with C with 10 C to please shut down their machine at the last minute. They're like, okay. And everybody on earth can see it disappear from the sky and they breathe a sigh of relief. (laughs) I hope so. We shall see. I hope so. I don't think like for me, it would have been a risk to, you know, like have book fit, you know, be killed off last episode here i don't feel like it's a risk to destroy vulcan or navarre and earth oh god anymore. both i mean they're both in danger and oh, or uh, don't lead too heavily into that i mean and or okay let's just destroy the alpha quadrant while they're at it because that <laughs> way next up next season has to be intergalactic because there is no milky way left <laughs> i mean space is bigger than that oh i know I know. <laughs> uh there were a few other connections in this episode, as you mentioned. We had two scenes between Paul and Adira, which uh-huh. struck me as a little odd. Like the second scene together when Paul felt the need to apologize. I didn't really see that. Like I didn't feel like what he had done rose to the level of needing an apology. Uh, no, he is just being the nervous dad uh, role. He's like, sorry, I went a little too far. <laughs> Making you feel awkward. And they were like, it's okay, dad. <laughs> Just proud of your kid. Yes. And well, you know, that's probably better than how my dad expressed it, which was when I did something cool, he made it sound even cooler, <laughs> which I never appreciated because people would say, oh, that's just what he does because he's proud of you. And I said, that's funny. It sounds very much like the same thing he would do if he was ashamed of me. <laughs> My accomplishments aren't impressive enough on their own, so he needs to lie about Embellish them. them. Well, yes, embellish. I, I like to call it a lie. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, at least Stamets was being honest. I thought that was cool. Uh, it was nice to have Adira back. I was not expecting that. Uh, I missed Tal. It sounded like maybe something had gone down with Adira and Tal. I hope that's not true. Because uh, they seem to Great. leave on pretty good terms. So it would be a surprise if suddenly, oh, we're not a couple anymore. Oh, no. I think they're fine. Uh, yeah. Here I, I was like, oh, no. Don't bring Adira back just to kill them off. <laughs> nah, they're not going like, to. But in-universe, they don't know that. Right. Uh, and then also we had at least three scenes between Saru and the Vulcan president. Yeah, President Arena. Us, Saru got the tiniest smile out of her when he was admit trying to admit his feelings and being a disaster. <laughs> it was cute. I thought it was very cute. I wish the president was. I mean, I know that she's Vulcan, and Vulcans don't often express their emotions in ways that we are accustomed to. But I do wish that she would 
more overtly reciprocate his feelings because I feel for the vulnerability that Saru has presented. And I would like for him to have a little bit more stability in response. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, and she did at the end. She said, I like it when you're around. Yeah, but Sabriel, I like it when you're around. That's still a very different kind of feeling. Yeah, and you can tell the difference between Serena saying it and you saying it. You just broke my heart. No, I'm just sorry. <laughs> yeah. Very, yeah. No, I I think you're right, but her having the feelings and her feeling like she can act on them might be different things. Like she might ultimately say, "Yes, Saru, I do have these feelings, but I am the president and I can't be allowed to be seen dating. Like, look at the movie The American President with Michael Douglas and Annette Bening. Great movie. And very complicated relationship when you're dating somebody in power like that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, granted, there's no chain of command here. She is not his president. But still, it's... Yeah, she instigated it. You think so? She's like, hey, uh, you know what? Meditating is usually good, but you know, it's really hard to do that right now. You want to go for a walk last week? And he was like, yes, I think it would be nice. Uh, yeah, she started it. She wouldn't have started it if she didn't think she could handle it. And she did give him some of that tea, if I recall correctly. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, she is totally like, she is being very heavy-handed for Vulcan. Like, hello, right here. Let's date. I was surprised that she joined the mission. I understand why, and I don't disagree with it, but there are a lot of very high-level dignitaries on this ship, and if something were to happen to it, it would be a significant blow to the Federation, especially given the where the Federation was last season. Yeah, I mean, to our knowledge, like, like I mean, yeah, that shows the importance of this mission, yeah? Uh, like, wow, President of Vulcan and President of Earth. Of the Federation. Um, not Earth, but Federation. Uh, on this ship. This must be a very important mission. No, it, it definitely is at that, yeah. Uh, and so that's for us to add weight to it, I guess. Yeah, and also there was, looked like a Ferengi ambassador. Yep, there's a Ferengi. Doc, Dr. Um, Hirai was there snacking in his other scene that's on. <laughs> yeah, on you, said you, you said you wanted to talk about him and we haven't yet. Yeah, well... well I was looking up because I saw someone mention like, oh, it's uh, no, um, Hiro Kanagawa. I want to bring him up because he's apparently been in a bunch of things, parts that I uh, forgotten he's in, shows that I've forgotten he's in, but I've apparently seen him plenty of times before. Any particular shows or appearances? Um, I said she's a long list, but most recently I saw him in The Man on the High Castle as mm. Yakuza leader uh, who gets killed. Apparently, he was a principal in Clark Kent's high school in the hmm. early season or two, uh, which oh, I had forgotten. It's been 20 years in Smallville. Oh. Um, I sent you listening. There's something you recognized him, too. He was in the pilot episode of Timeless, this great NBC time travel series that only lasted two seasons. It was not a recurring um, character. And since it was only the first episode, none, nobody had made an impression on me yet. But apparently, I saw him in that without realizing it. I see. I see. Yeah. Legends of Tomorrow, iZombie, uh, The Magicians, X-Files, Altered Carbon. Um, I think you have to say this with an exclamation mark and it's all caps. Godzilla! <laughs> I moved away from the microphone. Um, Caprica, 
there's been a lot of Canadian te- produced television. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I loved about his appearance in this show is that he was always eating. He was always snacking. <laughs> My first thought was like, are they going for Han in Fast and the Furious? Like, that's a little weird. <laughs> oh, it's funny that you mentioned, oh, Han? Not yeah. Han Solo. No. Oh, I've never seen the Fast and the Furious. At one point, Booker referred to a courier ship, and I thought I had to rewind and put on the subtitles because I thought he said a Corellian ship. <laughs> I was like, that's a crossover I wasn't expecting. <laughs> yeah, Corellians build ships all over. But I was not expecting to see people eating outside a mess hall. And that was a nice change. Like whenever I host a meeting at my workplace, back when I had a workplace, I would make sure it was catered that like either we are bringing in sandwiches or there's at least like little carrots and hummus or something. And we never see that. Like there are all these important decisions being made about the future of the Federation. And those decisions are being made on an empty stomach. (laughs) That's not when you want to do your most serious thinking. I mean, they even showed that in season three disco when Vance and Osira were discussing over food. Oh yes. But, and they actually talked about what it was made out of. I do remember that. (laughs) Uh, it's nice to see that it only took until the 31st or 32nd century before we're finally allowed to eat during meetings again. Okay. I don't know why that fell out of vogue for a couple centuries, but finally it's back. <laughs> That's all I have about this week's episode. What else are we missing? Um, let's see. Uh, programmable antimatter. We talked about that. Oh, the cloaked ship. On the planet Tarka and book one, too. Turned out to yeah. not matter at all. I, yeah, it's just an opportunity for them to hide in the grass. Yeah, uh, hide in the grass and cuddle a bit or tell, share a backstory. Aww. Because <laughs> uh, unless that's something that's going to matter in the future, it was so not needed at all. <laughs> well, I think it explained why the programmable antimatter had to be hidden. Because if it hadn't been, it would have been ransacked long ago. I suppose, yeah. Although that was a small amount of programmable matter, and it's supposed to cover all of Book's ship. That's a lot. Uh, maybe you just need to cover the window. <laughs> <laughs> it was a little blind. <laughs> yeah, it's going to um, be very interesting to see them cross into the galactic barrier and what they think they can do there. I mean... Whatever they lack in ship resources, they have in Tarka's brain power, and who knows what he'll do when confronted with a hyperfield. Yeah, uh, you know, when I watched this the second time, I was watching Tarka's responses when he was taking care of Oros and calling with him and talking to him, and um, yeah, you could see it in his eyes that something was up a bit on his mind. You couldn't really see what, but you could see it on his mind, and you can also see. The little antimatter vial things on Oroz's desk, the first scene that you see him. Oh, okay. I didn't see yeah. that. Huh. Yeah, I, I, we didn't know to look for it. Hmm. I didn't until I watched the second time. Went, oh, I recognize those things from the scene that there just came from. <laughs> By the way, Book and Aros, Ar- Book, Book and Tarka, as far as I know, are not aware that the DMA has moved. Yes, they, if they did, they did not bring it up at all. Which yeah. I don't think they do yet. Yeah, they don't know it's in the Alpha Quadrant. I don't know if that changes things, but I wouldn't be surprised if Burnham has to convey that to Book for some reason next week, and he's like, "Michael, I'm so sorry. I had no idea." I oh, actually, until you brought that up, that might be important because space is really, really big. The DMA is 
really, really big or pretty big. Um, yeah. uh, Risa is within distance of Earth because Enterprise got there. Maybe, oh. maybe um, Tarka will care a bit more now if Risa is in danger as well. Again, space is really big. Maybe it's not, but throwing that out there. That's Tarka's homeworld. Yeah. And so it, space is big. It might not be in danger, but if it's close enough to Earth, endanger Earth, maybe it is Ryza too. So maybe there'll be some impetus for them, him a different way too. Hmm. Throwing it out there, no idea, but it'll stick. We shall see. Yeah. Anything else? Oh, oh! Holy goodness, I'm sorry. There is something big. Uh, careful watching Ready Room this, ready room this week. Because um, near the beginning, they jump straight into um, talking about Picard airs next week. Spoilers? Yeah, in a major way, if that matters to you. Ooh, um, no, there is a, Thank you. Yeah, uh, I wanted to make sure I brought that up and I forgot to write it down. Because um, I knew it was important to you. I mean, those means it's important to other people, too. <laughs> um, there's a clip going around of a scene from Picard, but also in the ready room, they jump... And you get plenty of warning for both of these, but um, a good share of Ready Room is um, interviews with the actors talking about what their characters do this season and interspersed with clips from the season. So I would avoid Ready Room until mm, you see next week if that if spoilers are important to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, I'm sorry. I put that on last minute. I really wanted to make sure I brought it up, but I almost forgot. Well, then, that means that we have next week's episode of Discovery. That is going to be the penultimate episode of this season, I think, because there are only 12 episodes. Is that right? There's 13. So we have 11, 12, 13 left. Great. Great. So that's three more episodes left, and they will be overlapping with Picard. So we may be doing some double header transporter locks for the month of March. Yeah. Well, then, you're going to be hearing a lot from me, Sabriel, and our listeners are going to be hearing a lot from both of us. Until then. In the great words of Janeway, time. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on iTunes and keep your hailing frequencies open by following us on Twitter at TransporterLock or subscribing to our podcast and email newsletter at TransporterLock.com. 